Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. Hoder. Hoder. Buddy. I know you're looking for something to do down there beneath the cave, but I want to make sure you know. Hold on. <laughs> Binge mode contains adult content. If you're okay with what you see on Game of Thrones, you'll be okay with binge mode. Hold on. And now, binge mode. Winterfell is our home. It's ours. And Arya's and Bran's and Rickon's, wherever they are, it belongs to our family. We have to fight for it. I'm tired of fighting. It's all I've done since I left home. I've killed brothers of the Night's Watch. I've killed wildlings. I've killed men that I admire. I hanged a boy younger than Bran. I've fought and I lost. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode. <laughs> I'm Valerie Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Yeah. Joining me today, now that he's finished writing a strongly worded letter to his foes. Come and see! <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer, your maester, Jason Concepcion. Come and see this shit! Jason? Yeah. We're here to podcast. That's right. Come and see. Okay. Come and hear. Yeah, that's it. We are rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. We are deep diving one at a time. Spoiler warning, as always, we will be going deep on details from the show and the books from this episode and beyond. So state your demands clearly because it's time to break down season six, episode four, Book of the Stranger. Jason? Yes. Many will die. No matter what we do. <laughs> that's good. I think that's true. Better them than us. Yes. We need to be here to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in this fourth installment. So let's take a quick trip down our very own King's Road. But Castle Black, Ed, lights into John for abandoning him, abandoning the watch. All of this in their time of need. Just then... The gates fly open, and it's Sansa, Brienne, and Podrick. Sansa and John embrace in a moment that beautiful. is extremely beautiful, and also their first real interaction on the show. Incredible. Sansa later on pushes John on their next move, the next move of the Starks, and she says it should be this: winning back Winterfell. And she tells him that she's going to do it with or without him. Winterfell, she says, is our home. Davos questions Melisandre on her next move and, oh, what happened at the Battle of Winterfell, by the way? Brienne walks up, sword out, and tells them, hey, I haven't forgotten what happened to Renly, and Renly admits to executing Stannis. She really owns it. Love yeah, it. Does. And Ramsay's pink letter arrives for Jon. It announces, in stomach-turning language, Rickon's captivity, the death of his direwolf, and demands Sansa's return under penalty of death, torture, and everything else. Runestone in the Vale. Sweet Robin. <laughs> Still bad at things. Not involving sucking milk from his mommy's teeth. <laughs> He's been eating solid food the last few months, and it's been a tough, it's been a tough haul for him. Littlefinger arrives, much oh. to sweet Robin's delight. I brought you another gift. 
gotta just say, remarkably, improbably, incredibly, Littlefinger's accent has changed yet, yet again it's in act- season six. It's very similar to the season one accent. Yeah, he's going in a circle. You're at, where will it be in season seven? <laughs> Some hints in the trailers, certainly. <laughs> Littlefinger accuses Bronze Yacht of leaking details of his trip with Sansa. Who else knew? Right. But you. He's lying, of course. But this is all a manipulation. And with Robin totally under his control, putty in his hands, Littlefinger now essentially rules the veil. And yep. thanks to his little maneuver there with Bronzian, also controls the region's knights. Down in King's Landing, the High Sparrow meets with Marjorie and he tells her his origin story is a shoe crazed hype beast on the make. <laughs> Nikes, Adidas. Yeezys, the whole thing. Then Strikes he... me as a new balance man, gotta say. <laughs> Actually, you're right. <laughs> then he takes her to see Loras, and Sir Loras is broken in body and spirit, and he's very, 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 very close to confessing. She tries to bolster him, bolster his confidence, remind him that he is the heir to Highgarden. Later, Cersei finds Tommen in the presence of Grandmaster Pycelle, who is counseling the king. She kicks Pycelle out. Tommen is torn over how to meet the challenge of the High Sparrow. Later, Cersei, Jamie, and Olena resolve to do something about Marjorie's Walk of Atonement, whatever the cost. Kevin briefly objects, but Jamie gives him a way out. Over on Pike, Balon Greyjoy's last surviving son returns home, a little less prideful than when he last returned home. Yeah. Yara wonders if what remained of Theon died in Bolton captivity. She thinks that he's come back to claim Balon's seat. But Theon wants her to rule. He vows to support his sister. Up in Winterfell, Ramsay has Osha brought before him. You know how Ramsay likes to toy with people and tries to intimidate her. She goes right back at him, tells her, you know, well, after you flay people, do you eat them? Then I've seen worse than you. Uh, and she briefly tries to seduce him in much the same way uh, she did Theon, but Ramsay is not having it. He's aware of her ploy, and he murders Osha. No bells, but bells? Tiny, 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 tiny medium, bell. medium-sized bells. She did her best. She did her best. Helped the boys escape. She did. In Marine, emissaries from Astapor, Yunkai, and Volantis arrive to treat with Danny's small council. Danny's not there, but Tyrion is ready to take action, and he offers a middle path that basically angers both sides. Essentially, a slower rollout of Danny's reforms that would allow the masters in Yunkai and Astapor time to adjust in return for peace and eventually Danny leaving town. In Vice to Thrak, Dario and Jorah continue to follow Danny's trail. Dario tells Jorah that Yo, man, the sex is too wild. The dragon is too much of a beast. Your old man's heart might give out if you try to ride that thing. I think he'd be fine. (laughs) I think he'd do well. Just saying. Strikes me as a very selfless lover. I think that's I think that's fair. Dario is certainly the more experimental one. Dario <laughs> later, while handing over his uh, dagger that has a handle in the shape of a naked woman, uh, happens to catch sight of Jorah's arm. He now knows that he is the grayscale. Later, they sneak into the city and make contact with Danny, but actually, she doesn't need their help. She burns the temple of the Doshkaleen with the calls inside and emerges unscathed. The gathered horde of Dothraki bows before her. Mal. Yeah. You're not going to serve. No. 
you're going to die. Feels like it. (laughs) And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is negotiating in bad faith. Sometimes deals must be made and they're important deals, but sometimes people don't actually want the deals to succeed. But they negotiate anyway. Why? I don't know, because it provides a fig leaf. It shows that they made the effort, not an honest effort, but they can say that they made an effort or perhaps they just want to buy time. This episode is filled with people and parties negotiating in bad faith. As has been something of a custom for us in recent episodes, let's start with John and Sansa and Ramsay and everyone who's sort of entangled in this web of negotiations. Let's actually start with the Ramsay side of things here. The pink letter, the bastard's letter. This is a big thing in the books. Huge. Different in the show. Much different. Different circumstances. Still extremely cool and chilling. Absolutely, like, one of the most terrifying things that's in the book. Why is it called the pink letter? Yeah. Because there's the pink wax. There's pink wax on it. The wax seal. You know, guys, in the books, Roos, he wears this pink cloak. Imagine that. Doesn't really fit with the color palette of the show, but think about that. Pink is actually a color strongly associated with House Bolton. The Boltons. Roos, now Ramsey. Bad faith incarnate. Bad faith made decaying tortured flesh. And Ramsey's pink letter is merely the latest example of their overarching strategy. Quickly, the text of the letter, because we should really appreciate the depths of the depravity on display here. Yeah. To the traitor ambassador Jon Snow, you allowed thousands of wildlings past the wall. You have betrayed your own kind. You have betrayed the North. Winterfell is mine, bastard. Come and see. Your brother Rickon is in my dungeon. His direwolf skin is on my floor. Come and see. Protect Shaggy. Protect him. I want my bride back. Send her to me, bastard, and I will not trouble you or your wildling lovers. That's a key line that we're going to return to shortly. Keep her from me and I will ride north and slaughter every wildling man, woman, and babe living under your protection. You will watch as I skin them living. You will watch as my soldiers take turns raping your sister. You will watch as my dogs devour your wild little brother. Then I will spoon your eyes from their sockets and let my dogs do the rest. Come and see. Hard to see without eyes, Ramsey. Come on. (laughs) Follow your own narrative. He's doing very well. (laughs) It's a very strong writing. Spinning a yarn until then. Kind of lost me. Big plot hole. Signed. Ramsay Bolton, Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North. Ah, that signature tips them off. He has killed his father. He is in command. This is the person, in theory, if negotiating is even on the table, that they would actually have to negotiate with. Ramsay's offer of amnesty, send me signs and I won't attack you, is obviously bullshit. Right. That's not meant to be taken seriously. He doesn't actually think that John or Sansa or anyone reading that believes him. We as viewers certainly don't believe him. Ramsay wants Sansa back. Yes, that part is true. But he wants to attack Castle Black. He wants to take out John. He wants to wipe out every living Stark, bastard or no. I mean, he is a bastard. He's not going to hand wave the fact that John is a bastard. Everyone with a connection to this family is a threat to him. Sansa is the only one he can use to his advantage. Everyone else needs to be taken off the board. He's on the record. He asked Roos before killing Roos if he could go kill John. We know what his intentions are. This letter is written in bad yeah. faith. It's also just a pure intimidation tactic, obviously. Yeah. John, weather beaten by 
constant warfare, the death of his true love, Egret. He loved her. He did love her. And also just a small, <laughs> just tiny little thing that we'll, uh, we'll call death, dying. He died. That's, that's the thing that happened to him. He did do, he did do that. It was very recently. <laughs> he would prefer to find a middle course. And so it falls to Sansa, yeah. who understands the stakes here all too well, to bolster John's flagging, fighting spirit. Sansa says, his father's dead. Ramsay killed him. And now he has Rickon. John's like, we don't know that. John doesn't necessarily believe what's right. in the letter. And that is actually a nod to book readers. Yeah. You know, what do we know really about what this guy is saying? Should we believe what he wrote just because he wrote it? Reasonable, actually, to doubt. But Sansa knows better. Yes, we do, she says. No doubt in her mind that Ramsay is ready to back up every threat that he just put down on paper. And John, again, is looking for any way to de-escalate the threat that Ramsey poses. Tormund, who's there, who's one of the witnesses of this conversation, asks, well, how many men does he have in his army? And Sansa says that she heard Ramsey mention once that he had 5,000. This was back when he was talking about the, the impending battle with yeah. Stannis. John asks Tormund how many fighting men he can muster. What about this wildling force? What are we really talking about here? There's been a lot of speculation about how many wildlings made it through to the wall? How many are now in the Night's King's army? We don't really have a firm grasp. It's sort of shocking as a result of that to hear the number that Tormund throws out. 2,000. Yeah. That is not enough, guys. Not nearly enough. And if the threat isn't existential, well, maybe that's a good enough yeah. reason to not fight. Sansa won't accept this. You're the son of the last true warden of the North. Yeah. <laughs> check back on that. Uh, we'll check back next season. <laughs> Northern families are loyal. They'll fight for you if you ask. And then she takes his hand. And this is like, yeah. it's one of those things that seems small but is huge. Because we're going to talk a little bit later when we get to the seven about just the magnitude of this the fact that John and Sansa are interacting yeah, when they it's had incredible. it to this point of the show. But what just quickly here, what you have to understand is that these two were never close. Yeah. And Sansa's recognition of the power that John can have here, the role that he can play, shows a tremendous amount of growth and maturity on her part. The fact that she is reaching, literally reaching across the table to grasp his hand, to make physical contact with him, to embrace him and say, let's do this. Right. Let's do this. We can do this right. is monumental. And spoiler, but is going to make what? Well, the speculative spoiler is going to make the inevitable rift Ugh. between them in season seven all the more painful Ugh. to the stomach. She continues, a monster has taken our home and our brother. We have to go back to Winterfell and save them both. Now, of course, she didn't actually need to hear this letter to know what she wanted to do. She was ready to go fight from the jump. In yep. the earlier scene in the episode, when they first meet, they have this beautiful moment in the yard when they embrace, and then they they go inside, they're having a chat, and Sansa says, after John says, you know, I, I, I'll protect you. Father's ghost would yeah. <laughs> come after me otherwise. Sansa says, there's only one place we can go. Yeah, she's right. Home. And the fact that she is saying this isn't just about me and my safety and my future. This is about us, the Starks. The lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. This is meaningful. It belongs to our family. We have to fight for it. The idea that you don't just give in, that you don't just give up, that you're not just a prisoner forever, that right. you can fight your way out, take back what's yours, that you have agency, you have power. 
the amount of suffering that she has been through to find the strength and the courage and the will to say that and the to want that to genuinely want that and to not just give up is amazing and it's been pretty cool to watch her journey in such a compact period of time here and see in this moment that you know John gets so much credit and we yeah. are team John here we really are but He's the one here who doesn't want to yeah. fight. On rewatch, the thing that jumps out, one of the things that has jumped out at us is Sansa saves the North. She bolsters John's confidence, his spirit. He didn't want to do this. Right. He literally says, I'm tired of fighting. It's all I've done since I've left home. I've yeah. killed Brothers of the Night's Watch. I've killed Wildlings. I've killed men that I admire. I hanged a boy younger than Bran. I fought and I lost. He's basically ready to give up and she isn't. If we don't take back the North, we'll never be safe. Absolutely true. And this is the killer line here. I want you to help me, but I'll do it myself if I have to. Incredible. It's incredible. She really does do a lot to save the North. And as much shit as people gave her at the end of last season, why didn't she tell about the Knights of the Vale, et cetera, et cetera. She does as much as anyone to win back the North for the Starks. Credit to Brienne of Tarth. Of all the people at Castle Black right now, she might have the least time for and interest in bullshit. Bullshit content. She's the best. She is a straight shooter. She comes upon Davos and Melisandre uh, chatting in the yard at Castle Black uh, about what happened with Stannis and where's Shireen. And of course, Brienne has an issue with both of these people. Davos, she knows, was the hand of the king Stannis, who murdered her king, Renly. Weird, by the way, to realize that some people think of Davos as a bad guy. Right. Of course. Just yeah. weird. It's re- and it's a great <laughs> and it's such a great uh it's part of what makes this story great is the perspectives. Is everything. The switching perspectives. And Brienne comes upon them steel bared, which, you know, in this world, you pull your sword, that means you're ready to go. It means you're ready to kill someone right now. Declaration of intent. That's for sure. absolutely what it, what it is. And if you, it, in fact, um, bearing steel in the hall of a lord is taken as a mortal threat. You could be executed for that. And she walks up on them with her sword out, not even moving to draw it. It's out. It's in her hand. And some sword. Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> it's, that's not just your run of the mill, like, ding. It up. is named Oathkeeper. She recently killed... The boss of both of these people. You know, she comes up and she says, I saw what happened. I saw Stannis's forces defeated in the field. And Davos introduces himself, introduces himself. And Brienne reminds him, actually, we met. I was Kingsguard to Renly Baratheon before Renly was assassinated with blood magic. And now she stares down Melisandre. Davos says, not very convincingly, by the way, that's in the past now. Come on. <laughs> well, I, you know, Davos is also thinking... One, I need to find out what happened to Shireen. Two, uh, she did just help us bring back John. So let's like we'll go easy on her maybe for twenty four hours, and then we'll just put it to her. You can feel it though when he says it that he doesn't mean it. Yeah. He doesn't he believe it. It's, abs- not the, it's not in the past for him. Hundred percent does not believe it. Um, but he's just thinking we might have use for Melisandre. So let's hopefully no one get killed right now. <laughs> and Brianna says, "Yes, it's in the past. That doesn't mean I forget or forgive." He admitted it. You know who did? Stannis. Just before I executed him. She wants all negotiations to occur out in the open. Let's put our cards on the table. I know that Stannis used blood magic to kill his own brother. And I know that you two helped him. I know that. And 
one of these days I'm going to do something about it, as evidenced by the fact that I'm just walking up to you with my sword out. And then there's also Ramsey, who uh, we've said everything he does is in bad faith, and he's negotiating in bad faith with Osha. You know, he wants to get as much information as he can possibly glean out of her, toying with her, before he kills her. He asks her, you serve the Starks. I but they put me in chains and put a knife to my throat, so I serve them. And he asks why she kept protecting Rickon if this is the case. You know, why, why, why do that of your own free will if you were forced to do all this other stuff? And she pretends it was for the reward. Way I see it, I'm owed. And he says, well, you know, I have Rickon now. What good are you to me? And she says, I can give you what you want. And this mirrors Osha's actions at Winterfell with Theon and how she helped the boys escape. So Ramsay says, are you sure you know what that is about you know, what, what it is that she thinks he wants. And she says, same thing men always want. And when they really want it, they give it a bath first. <laughs> You're a good talker, he says. And here, Ramsey is kind of delighting in the fact that, um, oh, she doesn't know how depraved he is. Right. She doesn't truly know what she is dealing with in this moment. He's enjoying that. She grabs his, his dick. Then Ramsey says, You're a much better talker than Theon Greyjoy. I had to work hard to get him to talk, but they always do. He told me all about the Stark boys and who helped them escape and how she did it. And she reaches for a blade, but he stabs her right in the throat. Cool guy. Not a lovely dinner companion. Over in Marine, we get a uh, we get a, a front row seat to Tyrion Lannister's maybe first real mistake mm. on this show. Compromise, of course, is essential to diplomacy, and in normal negotiations, and I'm I will. Uh, admit that normal is a meaningless construct in the context of this story. But in normal negotiations, each side would come to the bargaining table expecting in good faith to give up something in order to forge some kind of lasting agreement that's amenable to both sides. This ideal crumbles when one or both sides of the discussion are only going through the motions. And this is exactly what's happening, Maureen. Danny's freedom movement poses a moral threat to the slaveholding economies and cultures of Yunkai, Astapor, and Volantis. In particular, but Essos really in general, because all of the free cities except for Bravos are slaveholding cities. The masters do not want peace. They right. understand that this there's no way to walk back what is happening here. They want to buy time to prepare for war. Appearing to negotiate then is beneficial to the masters. They get to look, they get a close-up look at the enemy's decision-making process now that the queen is off the board and perhaps forever. Uh, and they get to play for time. Grey Worm and Missandei, having lived their entire lives essentially in bondage, understand this instinctively. Tyrion does not. Tyrion says, Queen Daenerys won't stay in Marine forever. Her path takes her westward. And Rosdal, one of the slavers, says, when we last met, I offered her ship so she could return to Westeros, where she belongs. She refused them. Miss Andy, she refused them because hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children still lived in chains. And Rosdal says, as they have since the dawn of time. Yeah, that's not going to go away. Um, that disagreement is not going anywhere. I think it's fair to assume that the brutal... Savage impact of thousands of years of industrialized human bondage will not be erased in the lifetimes of anyone in that very elegant room. Right. Fair also to assume that the opposing positions, slavery is good. It's the basis of our culture. And no, it fucking isn't. We'll never be reconciled. Never. There is no middle path between slavery and freedom. And yet that's exactly what Tyrion is trying to propose. Tyrion says, 
You don't need slaves to make money. There haven't been slaves in Westeros for hundreds of years, and I grew up richer than any of you. Your house is built on a fucking gold mine, dude. But I digress. Anyway, he continues, but our queen recognizes that she erred. Does she? She's not here. Uh, By abolishing slavery without providing a new system to replace it. So- how quickly he yeah. moved into comfortably speaking yes, for, for Danny immediately. The a little bit of touch of arrogance here from, yeah. from Tyrion. So here's the Queen's proposal, he says. Slavery will never return to Marine, but she will give the other cities of Slaver's Bay time to adjust to the new order. And Yezan, another one of the slavers, says, What does that mean? Tyrion. Instead of abolishing slavery overnight, we will give you seven years to end the practice. Slaveholders will be compensated for their losses, of course, at fair market prices. In exchange, you will cut off your support for the Sons of the Harpy. Yes, on again. We do not support the Sons of the Harpy. What are you talking about? Are you crazy? <laughs> Tyrion, fine, fine, fine. But you will cut it off all the same. I do hope you accept, my friends. You will not receive a better offer. It's a pretty uh, weak offer, honestly. And Missy and the Worm, uh, which I'm, <laughs> I'm trademarking that right now, Missy and the Worm rightly are fucking aghast at this as any freedman or slave would be. After a meeting with a delegation of ex-slaves, they tear into Tyrion, Grey Worm says. After Tyrion basically used Grey Worm to sell his position to this delegation of freedmen, Grey Worm says, do not use me for your lies. Tyrion, those men respect you, Grey Worm says. They respect me because they know who I am. They know I am loyal. And he continues, I am loyal to my queen, not you. If you betray your work, you are my enemy. And the Missandei chimes in. You promised the slavers they could keep slavery, Tyrion says. For a short time, oh, you know. Not, uh, you know, just seven years. And Miss Sunday says seven years, you know, that's that could be a slave's entire life. Seven years is, could easily be seven days for a slave could be the, the right. difference between life and death. And Tyrion says in a very patronizing manner, actually, he says, you're right. Slavery is a horror that should be ended at once. War is a horror that should be ended at once. I can't do both today. And Grey Worm says you are wrong to trust these men. And Tyrion lays out here the mechanics of his decision, which would work in Westeros mostly, but probably will, as we've said, it's not going to work here. Tyrion says, I don't trust the masters. I trust their self-interest. They're trustworthy if they're convinced that working with me is in their self-interest. And he continues, their contempt is their weakness. They'll underestimate us at every time and we'll use that to our advantage. Grey Worm says, you will not use them. They will use you. That is what they do. Tyrion. Now, we love Tyrion. Dearly. Tyrion's incredible. You know, my memory is fucking shot right now. (laughs) But I don't think we've ever criticized Tyrion, but he's wrong here. Or at least, at the very least, partially correct. Slavery is a horror, yes. But some things like, say, uh, ending slavery now and for all time are worth fighting for. Grey Worm and Missy are correct. The masters are not negotiating good faith. If Tyrion were simply buying time with this deal until they figure out where Danny is, that would be one thing. In that case, though... He should have pressed the masters harder to officially renounce support for the sons, but he didn't do that. He's sincerely trying to force a peace, and it won't work, as we will soon see. This course only emboldens the masters, who, though they are pieces of fully formed human shit, absolutely appreciate the stakes of the conflict. After all, Tyrion and Danny actually don't have any leverage. Yes, they have dragons. Yes, they have a huge army. But as they have admitted numerous times to many people, they're leaving here. What will that mean for the slaves, the freedmen, and their supporters when that happens? Time is on the side of the masters, and they know it. Time may or may not be on the High Sparrow's side, but he certainly thinks he is because his whole worldview is informed by the idea of the eternal. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the High Sparrow and 
negotiating is that he exclusively negotiates in sincere good faith. His words mean what they mean. He says what he intends to say. There's no subtext. There's no hidden agenda. He's not playing a game. And when he says that sinners should be punished, he means it. In other words, he is speaking a basically a completely different language from every other player in King's Landing. He's playing a different game, at least, if he's playing one. And unsurprisingly, Marjorie, who has a keen political and emotional social antenna, is the first power player to really recognize this, to start to see him for who he is and to understand what she's dealing with. And that's in part because the Sparrow, the High Sparrow, in this episode, lays out his origin story for Marjorie. He was a successful middle-class cobbler, providing fine footwear to some of the realm's finest people. Marjorie notes that quality goods take time to produce, and the High Sparrow has a real zinger. He says, yes, I imagine you've worn a year of someone's life on your back. The highborn like to cover their feet with my time, and they paid well for the privilege. I use their money, he says, to buy a taste of their lives for myself. Each time I indulged, I felt myself ascending to something better. Marjorie says, and one day you walked through a graveyard and realized it was all for nothing and set out on the path to righteousness. Book of the Stranger. There's that episode title, guys. Verse 25. Ah, you're familiar with the scripture. Yes. Hard not to be when that constantly shouting it at me all the time. And this right here is the way to negotiate with the High Sparrow, to speak his language. Well, what about Loris? Is he ready to negotiate? Does he understand how to? It doesn't seem like it, and this is concerning. The High Sparrow, after his chat with Marjorie, lets her visit Loras finally, and he is a total wreck. He is in shambles, and Marjorie says, listen to me, you need to stay strong. Loras says, I can't stay strong. I never was strong. Those are the words of a broken person. Now, This is concerning because if you're at the point where you don't care, what might you be ready to do? Now, Loris is ready to let them win. Just make it stop, please, he says. The interesting thing here is we don't yet know at this point in the season, at this point in Marjorie's journey, where she really is with all of this, what's truly going on in her heart and mind. But what we do know is that either way, she's negotiating in bad faith with someone here. Either she's not buying in and she's negotiating in bad faith with the High Sparrow hoping to play him and to to free her and Loris, liberate them on favorable terms for House Tyrell. Yeah. Or she actually is buying into this and is negotiating in bad faith with her brother by basically faking that she's still fully on his side. More to come. Cersei and Tommen. Oh, mother and son. Cersei has always had ulterior motives and that those are the things that drive her. She has many, many, many dark secrets And she is driven by those things. She loves Tommen with an intensity that threatens at any moment to spill over into violence, explosive violence, as we will soon see. But that doesn't mean she's willing to level with him in order to get the outcome that she's looking for. She goes to see her son and immediately sets about digging for info about the Sparrow. Tommen doesn't realize that this is what's happening, and he's all too happy to give up the date of Marjorie's Walk of Atonement. We get the Tom and Window Cam. Foreshadowing. Always the Tom and Window yes. Cam. Uh, Tom and asks if Cersei likes Marjorie. Actually, he says it's something more like, uh, you don't like her, do you? 
But she dodges this, focuses on her new target. Whether I like her or not is completely unimportant. Marjorie is the queen. Queens must command respect. Kings more so. Not just for their sake, but for everyone's. The High Sparrow has no respect for kings or queens, no respect for anything in this world. He has no use for things in this world. He wants to knock them down and replace them with what? With fantasy, with beggars in the street, with nothing. Here we see Cersei finally getting the picture. Tommen couches his revelation, his information about Marjorie's walk with a warning. He says, we need to be careful in dealing with the High Sparrow to prevent things from escalating any further. We have to be careful not to antagonize him. He has Marjorie. He can't put her at risk. He's dangerous. What he's asking here is for Cersei to basically stand down. And Cersei has no intention of doing that, but she pretends that Not she really d- her style. No, not her style at all, but she pretends all the same to do that. Sure thing, Tommen. Then she and Jamie go right to the small council and pitch an armed intervention at the Sept of Baylor. Cersei to the small council. The High Spower sees power knowing full well we'd bicker amongst ourselves instead of seizing it back. Here we are. Well done to us. Now the future of the Seven Kingdoms rests in his dirty peasant hands. Because I allowed him to do that. In a few so days, insane. Yeah. In a few days, he'll have a trial for me. But before that, Queen Marjorie will make her walk of atonement. And Lady Olenna says something to the effect of, no, that can't happen. Right off the bat, when you bring up the one thing that you know right. the other person won't abide, that's a bad faith negotiation because you don't actually care. You don't. It's all just about manipulation. That's all it is. And Jamie says to Lena, you've got the second largest army in Westeros. You'll bring them into the city. Stop Queen Marjorie's humiliation before it starts and take her back into crown custody. This clearly, clearly is not the spirit or the letter of what Cersei discussed with her son, the king. And Kevin raises this obliquely. Kevin says, the king has ordered me to take no action against the high sparrow or the faith militant out of fear for the queen's safety. Jamie. You'll take no action at all. Loophole here, guys. And then Jamie goes on to essentially define what it is to negotiate in bad faith. He says to Kevin, the whole thing will be over before anyone can call on you to do anything. When the highest power is in custody or dead, preferably, and Marjorie's back at Tom's side, do you think the king will be angry at the outcome? They're essentially saying, hey, this works for everyone. Yes, they told us not to do this, but it's better to apologize later. Man without honor. Yep. Slipping back into some of those old bad habits. What would Brianne say to Jamie? Well, Brianne is about to have some other people to worry about yeah. because Littlefinger. Oh. Working to acquire an army of his own. Spoiler alert. This will come into play later in the season. Now, Littlefinger always knew, of course, what outcome he wanted here. This entire thing was a farce yeah. to achieve his desired goal. That is negotiating in bad faith, even if it's not always clear that it's a negotiation. And then he pulls the same BS with Robin when it comes to Sansa. He tells her that he suspects that Sansa is heading to Castle Black. The word of her escape from yes. Winterfell has spread far and wide at this point. But it's not going to be safe for her there, he says. The Boltons are hunting her. Robin, well, she's my cousin. We should help her. That was my instinct as well. <laughs> so, my lord has spoken. So Gather great. the knights of the rail. The time has come to join the fray. They are all puppets on his string. Hey guys, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to binge mode. And what, pray tell, could be a worse faith negotiating tactic than having a meeting with a bunch of dudes who you know you're going to set on fire in like 45 seconds? Uh, And 
We'll touch on this. And Danny's concerning mm. and growing pile of mad queenish actions in the champion's purse. Since you mentioned Danny, though. Yeah. We're not queens here. No. Even so, the calls depend on us for wisdom. That's true. And our lives have meaning. That's more than most have. Yeah. That meaning is only binge mode, but even so. In light of Danny's actions in this episode, please assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel. Teach us everything we need to know about this particular Dothraki custom, the Dosh Kaleem. The Dosh Kaleen is a great example of the hypocrisy that lives at the heart of Dothraki culture. They're simple people, but, you know, complex in a really interesting way. Dothraki tradition holds that. When Akal dies, after all his blood riders have committed ritual suicide and the other members of his horde have completed killing each other to see who's now going to lead. His Khaleesi is to receive safe passage back to Dothrak, which means city of the Dothraki in their language, where she will live out her days as a member of the Dosh Kaleen, which means council of crones or council of widows. This unique retirement program reveals the hypocrisy at the wild heart of the Dothraki culture. The horse lords value strength, right? Above all else, that's all they, that's their currency is strength. Calls gain their position at the head of a Kalasar by essentially genocide against anyone who crosses their path, mercilessly slaying rivals, enslaving their enemies, women and children. They spend all of their lives on horseback and consider the sedentary nature of urban life unnatural and even cowardly to a certain extent. They don't sell stuff. They don't farm. They deeply despise witches and all forms of sorcery. So kind of weird that the Dothraki have a huge capital city where violence is strictly forbidden, international trade flourishes, and an assembly of revered holy women are tasked with doing wish-like stuff, such as watching you eat a stallion's heart and reading omens and prophesizing the future. But, you know, that's what happens when you let a bunch of dudes sit around in a hut and fucking make locker room talk. Anyway, the existence of Vice Dothrak makes a little bit more sense when you consider that the Dothraki weren't trying to build a city. They just needed a place to store all the shit that they stole from people. <laughs> you know, like uh, imagine uh, back in the time when the Dothraki at the end of the century of blood. I thought were... you were going to say, imagine the Dothraki episode of Hoarders. Oh my God. It's like, <laughs> this is gold statue from Marine. This bones of child. <laughs> anyway. So imagine it's back during the century of blood. The Dothraki are exploding onto the scene from no one's actually sure where. You know, you're a cow, you're rampaging across the land, you've got all your tens of thousands of uh, Dothraki screamers at your back, and you've just finished sacking some picturesque city, say, Gornath or whatever, and murdering its menfolk, clapping the women and children in chains, dragging them away, stripping the city of its treasures. That feels good, right? You're riding off with your spoils, and then suddenly you're, you come to after drinking all the wine and all the ripine pillage, and you're like, what do we do with all this shit? Hold on. I can't just go around carrying, like, gigantic statues all around. We have to put this shit somewhere. What do you do? Well, they chose a place that made the most sense to them. There's The Thraki um, religion is essentially very simple. They revere a mountain called the Mother of Mountains, and a lake called the Womb of the World. So let's put our shit close to there. And that's essentially what they did. And the population of Vaistothrak is pretty low year round. It's just the Dosh Kaleen slaves 
a few Dothraki, maybe whoever happens to wander in at any given time, and international traders who have come to buy and sell stuff that the Dothraki steal. But interestingly, the city is large enough to, in theory at least, accommodate every Kalasar should they all ride into town at once, which is what happens when Danny burns the cows. Handy timing there. Yeah. Maester. Yes. When men really want something, Uh-oh. they give it a bath first. Is that strictly true? I don't think so. I, I Definitely don't... not on this show. <laughs> no. <laughs> for Ramsey, of all people, Jesus. to be the stickler for hygiene. Actually, we'll get to that very, very <laughs> shortly. We yes. really want to head to the Sept to take a bath of our own, to bathe in the light of the Seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode, lightning round style. You go first, number one. Number one, uh, interesting question. Is John an Oathbreaker? Yes, he died, which technically uh, releases you from your vow. I guess that's the letter of the vow, not the spirit. Is he on solid legal ground here? Ed says, I was with you at Hard Home. We saw what's out there. We know what's coming here. How can you leave us now? And John, he's just depressed. His brother's turned on him, and it's been a tough time. Remember, so. you're a little different when you come back from the dead. Yeah, it's a little, it's you try even, it. He's even sadder you than before. You try and see what kind of mood you're in. Look at the mood you're in now just from oh binge mode. God. Try dying. John says, I did everything I could. And Ed says, you swore a vow. I, I pledged my life to the Night's Watch. I gave my life. Boom, 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 loophole. Yeah. They killed me, Ed. My own brothers. You want me to stay here after that? Yes. Good point. Yeah, but it's the wildlings and the fucking white walkers and everything. What are you to do, John? Good points on both sides. I agree. Good points on both sides. Number two, let's stick with John for a minute and talk about how truly incredible the first moments between John and Sansa are. The look the sound, because that conversation that you were just referencing between Ed and John opens the episode and then interrupted by, oh. Open the gates. Someone's at the gates. Who could Who it be? Says, uh, oh. oh, my God. Sansa and John, the, when they meet eyes, yeah. there is so much uncertainty on both yeah. of their faces for it's just a, a moment. absolutely fraught moment. And then there is the kind of affection yeah. and need and longing that you can only feel for for family for somebody who even if you don't always get along even if you weren't always close you know is your connection to that word we talked about earlier home and they hug they embrace it's beautiful and then they go inside and they're talking and john says and this is really interesting we never should have left winterfell and sansa says don't you wish we could go back to the day we left (laughs) sort of how we feel about business (laughs) john says how could we know and Sansa, this is, this is again, a credit to her. Yes. I spent a lot of time thinking about what an ass I was to you. I wish I could change everything. And he's, he's in a charitable mood. We were children. I was awful, just admit it. And he laughs. You were occasionally awful. Yeah. This is, like, very sweet and charming. And then, where will you go? Where will we go, John answers. If I don't watch over you, father's ghost will come back and murder me. Extremely yeah. sweet. This That's is the man sweet. who just said, my watch has ended. Yeah, I'm done. I'm out. I'm done. Done trying to take care of people. Done trying to save everyone, fight their battles, make this work. He will again later, as we've discussed later in this episode of Game of Thrones. He will go on to say, I'm done fighting. But he still has this protective instinct inside of him. It's who he is by nature. Yeah. But what a beautiful, beautiful reunion. 
It's great. Just think about the fact that these characters never interacted. Never! Until the it's, fourth episode of it, season it's, six. It's mind-blowing to consider. Fair to say yeah. that Kit Harrington and Sophie Turner yes. as actors, like John and Sansa are obviously two of the more important characters on the yep. show, but Kit Harrington and Sophie Turner as actors are two of the breakout stars right. of the Game of 100%. Thrones television experience. Yeah, Sophie Turner is in X-Men movies. Though. Yeah, they're famous. Dating a Jonas brother. And never forget that John and Egret are together in real life. In real life. Amazing. This is the first moment that these two rising stars are sharing conversation. It's amazing. It's, it's incredible. It's, amazing. it's a testament to the power of the show that they didn't need that yeah. until this point. It's a testament to the scale and ambition of this story in general, that you can have two absolutely crucial characters who don't interact right. for this long. It's the same thing we talked about before last season with Tyrion and Danny, but of course it's you feel it yeah. the the absurdity of it even more here because they're they grew up together. Yeah. They're family members. Number three. On the battlements, Melisandre is leaning against a banister, watching the men in the yard. She's doing the the, the Stannis thing, watching the sports. Davos comes <laughs> up and he wants to know, so Melisandre, what are your plans now? She says, I will do what Jon Snow commands. You serve Jon Snow now? He is the prince who was promised. And Davos says, forgive me, my lady. I thought that was Stannis. And she is just like, bye. <laughs> and it's a good thing to keep in mind. Melisandre has been wrong and dramatically fucking wrong yeah. before. Number four. Why don't Dario and Jorah just have their own show? <laughs> I mean, the scenes between them right. are... Majestic. Because, because if you were executive producing that show, Dario would be fired within a day and then it would just be the Jorah show. I would watch. <laughs> Y'all right? Dario says yeah. as they're hiking, they're making their way out to this cliff. They need the vantage point. They need to be able to see. And Jorah's huffing and puffing. Why don't you sit and catch your breath? You might as well have just tacked on old man old to man. the end. I'm fine. Dario responds. <laughs> it just right goes right for the fucking nuts here. I don't think you could ride the dragon. <laughs> 20 years ago, maybe. And Shore's sure like, what? <laughs> Our queen. She's wild, you know. Don't let her size fool you. It's hard enough for me, and I'm a young man. You? I don't think your heart could take it. And Jorah just looks like he's going to murder Dario, but Dario's not faced. He hey. continues, must make you angry that your queen chose me. Amazing, amazing comeback from Jorah here. And he means this sincerely. Yeah. It makes me sad. Yeah. You'll disappoint her before long. She'll move on. <laughs> Dario says, well, I'll disappoint her before long. And this is a this is a real actually knock on Jorah, who, of course, has right. disappointed her already. Jorah says, we need each other right now. After we're done needing each other, kind of lets it hang in the air. And Dario says, I don't want to fight you, Jorah the Andal. What do I have to gain? If I win, I'm the shit who killed an old man. If I lose, I'm the shit who was killed by an old man. And Jorah just says, <laughs> just looks at him. You didn't get much discipline as a child, did you? None. <laughs> Number five. Oh, the love affair between Tormund and Brienne starts here as beautiful. Brienne rides in with um, Sansa and Podrick, and Tormund looks at her like he has been struck by a thunderbolt, and the world has shrunk to just he and her, and that's all that exists in the world. And he's staring at her. His mouth is fallen agape. His heart is beating out of his face. <laughs> fucking chest. And how does Brienne react to this? Horrified. Her hand goes right to the right to her sword pommel like, what is this guy's problem? Sheila who? Sheila what? 
Forget those claws, my God. <laughs> Number six. Latest notice of violations from the Westerosi yeah. Hygiene Board is in, and we regret to inform you all that there's a C hanging from the gates of Winterfell. C for concerning. <laughs> concerning that Ramsay uses the same blade he stabs into Osha's neck to then continue peeling his apple. Now, he <laughs> wipes the knife on like a dish which, towel. Which we all know. It's not good enough. Not good enough, guy. That stuff breeds bacteria. Where are the Clorox wipes? Also, you know there's another knife. She was reaching for it to try to kill you. You got options. Yeah, it's not good. And number seven, Lord Peter rides up to Runestone, sees Robin shooting arrows five feet in front of him into the ground. And he says, the defender of the rail. And Robin goes, Uncle Peter. My lord, come and see. I missed you on your name day. Go on. And he points to the carriage that he's riding in front of. And Robin goes, a falcon. Sigil of his house. Yes. A Gaia falcon. The greatest and rarest of birds. What else (laughs) could Uncle Peter have gotten sweet Robin for his name? What else? A Ziploc bag of mother's milk. (laughs) (laughs) I have brought you a gift from the lactating women of the South. Gross. Mal. Yeah. We're small men. Yes, we are. As one of us is. None of us are fit to lead the Dothraki. So thank the Stallions for this episode's champion. Each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game and advance his or her cause in some tangible way. This week, the winner of our Champions Purse is... Daenerys Targaryen with a very strong anti-Mad Queen warning. Why don't you run through the pros first? Why did Danny get this honor? Danny shows cunning, bravery, and ruthlessness here, uh, which are necessary to achieve her goal, which is uh, walking out of the temple of the Dosh Clean. She pretends she has to pee, make water, she says. I love that term, by the way. Then complains about the old ladies and how they smell. Old ladies <laughs> smell weird. Of course they it's do. true. Imagine being confined in Ugh. that hut just like with their stench. Weird Ben Gay and like <laughs> moldy like linens. Anyway. So when Jorah <laughs> and Dario find Danny and tell her... Run now. First of all, run from 100,000 guys with horses? Like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Great plan, guys. This is my top counselors? Get the fuck out of my face. Maybe less time talking about what it's like to fuck Danny and more time actually formulating a plan, an exit route. Jorah, very weakly here, says, all we can do is try. (laughs) Khaleesi. Khaleesi, please. And she says, we can do more than that, and you're going to help me. She isn't just interested in escaping. She wants to facilitate change. She's thinking so far outside the box that she's, like, outside the world. And Wow, that was deep. Thank you. <laughs> Later, with the calls in the temple of the Dosh Kaleen, Danny unleashes her dopeness. She looks around and says, I know where I am. I've been here before. I had a stallion's heart, like, just right over there. Five-star restaurant. You can probably see the stain in the ground still. And this is where the Dosh Kaleen pronounced my child the stallion who will mount the world. Kal Morrow is like, yeah, but what happened? Then you trusted a sorcerer, like a fool, which is, by the way, against like one of our two rules. That's bad. Then your baby died because of her. And then Kal Drogo died because of you. That's all true. And she says, you are small men. None of you are fit to lead the Dothraki, but I am. So I will. And they're like, <laughs> oh, you're not in the Dutch clean anymore. Sorry. And then he's like, nah, watch this. I can't burn. 
pushes the brazier over. The fucking Dosh Clean house goes up like it was soaked in gasoline. This place, guys, what? It's listen, a dry heat out I, there. You got to like moisten that place down something. Anyway, cut to the outside. Jorah and Dario are watching. The Kalasar is gathering in amazement. What is going on here? The temple is consumed by flames and out walks Danny, nude, unburnt. Her hair is not even burnt. And everyone bows. Why? Because the Kalasar respects strength. And this is the strongest fucking thing anyone has ever seen. And Jorah's like, I saw this once. I forgot to tell you about that, Dario. And Dario is just like, no, this is cool. Right. So that's one of my anti-Danny notes. I a few concerns. A few right. concerns the burning, about our girl. The burning, the constant burning is an anti-Danny. Yeah, concerns. Yeah. One thing is, uh, they actually like have seen this before, right. and it's like, Danny, get another move, dude. Yeah. You know, sure, this is dope. It works. No one else can do this. That's great. Try something new. Yeah. Try something that we get it. You got dragons. You're the unburnt. Right. Qu- quick 20-second aside here for, for everyone about the show change here, though, yeah. regarding her unburntness. Right. This is Worth a, explaining. This is a, a crucial and important change from the books. George has made clear that Danny's walking out of the funeral pyre in the end of season one, end of book one, um, with the dragons hatched clinging to her breast, uh, was a one-off thing. That was because of the particular magic currents, whatever it was that were that were fomenting at that time, the death of Miri Mazdur and her screams and unleashed some kind of blood magic that allowed Danny to survive, allowed the dragons to hatch. Um, it was never George's intention that this would be a thing, like she would have a superpower. Right. So fair or unfair, I fair think unfair. we as book readers hold that against this yeah. plot point just a tad. It's like, if Danny can just always do this, is she just invincible? Right. Like, what does that mean for the stakes of the show then? That's a little bit concerning. How vulnerable is she really? Other thing, there is a moment in the conversation between Tyrion and the slavers back right. in Marine. obviously not directly related to Danny in this episode, but it certainly pertains to her. It is about her. Just because your master has silver hair and tits doesn't mean she's not a master. Right. Now, this is the most damning thing that someone could say about Danny, but it's and it's it's unfair, but it's also worth at least thinking about, yeah. especially given the decision Danny makes here. She is literally wiping out a culture. Yeah. That's that's okay. That's cool. We're rewarding that. Like, where's the line between liberator and dictatorial invader and, dare we say it, mad queen? I would add that the Dothraki have, for all of their history, their culture is based on raiding cities and villages and towns, dragging people away in slavery, and just killing everyone. Now she's taking them to Westeros, the land that she intends to rule. What does she think that they are going to do there? I think people might ask, okay, well, if their culture is based on wiping out your enemies, proving your strength, taking what's yours, why is what she did here wrong? And it's like, obviously, they respect her for it, as as you laid out clearly. But from our perspective, we have to keep in mind, first of all, she's doing this in the heart of their culture, the right. sacred city, the one place you're... What do Dario and Jorah tell right. us earlier in the episode? You, know, you can't even bear steel That's here. Right. It is a, a sacrilege to, even if she's not doing it with a knife, pollute their holy land in this way. It shows a certain lack of respect for customs, a very greedy arrogance. And I'm 
the one. Yeah. I know best. Follow me always. And this is a, a recurring red flag for Danny as she conquers city after city. Yes, she's liberating. Yes, she's freeing slaves, breaker of chains. All of that is wonderful. Right. But but she doesn't consider the impact on the culture. This is, of course, what Hisdar has preached to her over and over. And we're not siding with Hisdar. We're just noting that some of the critiques that people are throwing at Danny are based in something valid. Yeah, there's something there. And as you note, concerning as she's about to head west. And, of course, there's the Mad Queen aspect of yes. this. She literally just burnt them all. That's literally what she did. What about all those chats with Barristan right. about the Mad King and what he did and why it was really, really bad yeah. and not the thing that Danny I mean, should do? Remember the look on her face when she pushes one of the masters forward into Rhaegal and Viserion's pen and watches as they flambe this guy and he screams, sinks to his knees. She looks enthralled. It's borderline erotic. Yeah, to there's that. It's the same look she has on her face when she pushes the Brazier yes. toward Kal Moro in this 100%. episode. She's not just doing this to escape. She's not just doing this to survive. She relishes it. Yes. And that is alarming. We talk about this a lot the idea that George rewards reluctant leaders. Danny is power mad at this point. Yep. She won the episode, but we're, we're starting to get a little concerned about her future in the A war. little bit. Well, my dears. We've been stripped of our dignity and authority, publicly shamed, confined to this podcast studio. What's left to work with? Still, we hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us next time when we will be, oh. well, we could say discussing, but honestly, sobbing into our mics <laughs> as we attempt to discuss season six, episode five, The Door. Oh. A classic. Huge. Gut-wrenching Game of Gut Thrones episode. Until then, remember... Forgive us, we didn't get much discipline as children. I brought you a gift, a six pack of breast milk. Uh. <laughs> oh, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Uncle Peter. <laughs> Oh my god. <gasps> Vile. <laughs> <laughs>